Hi, I'm Awista Ayub, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 10 new Class of 2021 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Caleb J. Gale, a Class of 2021 New Arizona Fellow. Caleb writes about the impact of history on race and identity. He completed both his MBA and master's degree in public policy from Harvard. Most recently, he was named an Emerging Voices Fellow at Demos. His writing has been featured in The New York Times, The Guardian, The Harvard Review, The New Republic, and quite a few other places. Caleb is the author of the forthcoming book from Riverhead Books titled Cow Tom's Cabin, which examines the true story of Cow Tom, a former Black chief of the Creek Nation. The book provides a narrative account of how Black Native Americans, including Kyle Tom's descendants, were divided and marginalized by white supremacy in America. Caleb, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. Thank you. So to start, can you just frame your project for us uh, so that we have a better sense of what you plan to write about this year? Essentially, my whole goal is to help the reader take one second, if, if I can get it, to re-examine how history has influenced the way in which they see themselves and which they see the people around them. I always grew up thinking that Black history uh, was fairly linear, that we came to this country forcibly, we were embedded in slavery, and then we were liberated. Eventually, there was a package of civil rights and voting rights and housing rights that we got much later on, far too late. And while that is definitely the story for some, it's not the story for Cal Tom and his descendants who had a very different experience of what it meant to be black in America. For them being black was also being Creek, being members who, of society who not only experienced either personally or in close proximity slavery, but also uh, achieved significant amounts of wealth, prosperity, ownership and political influence right outside the reaches of the U.S. government in the Creek Nation. Um, So hopefully helping the reader understand this very peculiar story of this former Black chief and his descendants and their decision to consistently vie for how we remember their and uh, hopefully our more collective understanding of Black history hopefully will help the reader understand exactly what it might mean to be an American, what it might mean to own the means of constructing and conveying their identity. So can you talk about more about how you came upon this story as well as your own connection to Oklahoma? Sure. Uh, My family uh, is actually Jamaican. I was born uh, in the Bronx and we came to Tulsa or moved to Tulsa rather when I was about seven or eight. I grew up hearing kids in churches and community centers and sports teams who looked just like me. And for the listener and reader of of my bio, I'm a fairly dark black man. And uh, I would hear some of these kids say to me that I got Indian in me. And for me at that time, I thought it was farcical. I thought it was a tall tale that maybe their parents had told them. But as I got older, I would hear whispers if you will, um, around my community of Black folks who had this much more complex story, this non-simplified, very complex story of how they came to be. And as I was actually sitting at my desk at The Guardian over two years ago now, uh, as a features writer, I, I saw a, on the AP News wire the ticker across 
a television screen and my desktop monitor that blacks were suing Native Americans for citizenship. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, uh, I think my, my connection to Oklahoma might help me tell this story. Come to find out a lot of people that I grew up with and admired were part of this lawsuit. And so I booked the first flight that I could get to Oklahoma. And as you can imagine, there aren't too many direct flights directly to Oklahoma. So it took some time. But once I got there, I immediately started to connect with these families and realized that I, just like so many other people in America, have this overly simplistic view of history, one that completely blocks out the great complexities of what it might mean to have been a successful Black family on their own land, uh, with their own ranch, with their own customs that were this beautiful and complex intermixing and kind of inelegant but also artful clashing of um, various backgrounds to, to define how they were going to be in America. And so once I really became enmeshed in that story, I, I called my editor, Jessica Reed at The Guardian, who's in charge of features, and told her maybe for the next 30 minutes without taking a breath, over the phone what exactly I had found there. And she knew, just like I knew, that there was an opportunity to tell a different tale about America, one that too often has been forgotten. And in my opinion, not just forgotten by accident, but forgotten on purpose. And so one of the things you actually mentioned in your application is that, that there's often a glazed over version of history that we're taught in school. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about that experience for you growing up in Oklahoma, but also the moment when you realized that there were these gaps in what you were taught and what you understood as the history today, looking back on it now with, with this different perspective as a researcher, as someone who is more informed, you know, as this adult, and then also what you're hoping to, to achieve with your book towards potentially uh, addressing some of these gaps in history and, and how they're taught. Yeah, for sure. You know, Oklahoma, um, like many other parts or many other states in the U.S., has this knack for rushing towards reconciliation over past racial injustices without dealing with the truth of them. So Oklahoma, specifically Tulsa, where I'm from, is home to what was perhaps the most violent, aggressive act against a black community in history, the uh, 1921 race massacre that happened right there in Tulsa. What is particularly interesting um, for me is that I grew up not knowing that that happened not too far from where I lived. Not only that, I had no clue that quite a few of the Black folks who had achieved such significant wealth and prosperity in this part of Tulsa that used to be called Little Africa or Greenwood or Black Wall Street, also, you know, a lot of the Black folks there were also um, members of the Creek Nation, the very nation that I'm focused on uh, in this book. And that part of the reason that some of the Black folks in that area, as well as many of the surrounding areas, like how Tom's descendants, were able to kind of achieve that sort of stature, um, such that W.B. Du Bois would marvel at this place called Black Wall Street, Booker T. Washington would marvel at this place that he called Negro Wall Street. Part of the reason was is because they had a firm stake in that ground. They, they owned the land at a time when Black folks just quite frankly did not own land um, to that extent, that weren't able to exercise that sort of political autonomy and authority. So Oklahoma, 
uh, like so many other places, is right now coming to a realization that there was something particularly bad that happened there that's having significant effects on how we live life today. So even if you go to that part of North Tulsa where Black Wall Street once stood tall, that you know these luminaries of the of the civil rights movement um, of the early 1900s would marvel at. You know, you go back to those same places, and the average life expectancy in some of those zip codes is about 10 years less than that of the county which it resides. Right. Um, so perhaps if we dealt with the truth of the things that have happened there, the truth of the fact that Demario's family, no matter how much his ancestors might have contributed to the establishment and the persistence of some of these uh, Native American nations, as well as the contributions that they made to the state of Oklahoma, they, because of the decision in 1979 to change the citizenship regulations that kicked many Black folks out of the Creek Nation, can no longer claim a citizenship that his ancestors, you know, fought for and bled for and defended. And so part of what I hope to do is that I really hope that kids like me growing up in Tulsa, growing up in Oklahoma, growing up in all different parts of the country, don't have to live their lives um, with this overly simplistic view of history. That kids like me, who couldn't necessarily draw as straight of a line between 1619 um, and 2020, kids like me whose parents came from a different country in the 70s, could still find their home within the story of uh, the, the need for progress, restitution, reparations uh, within the Black community and for the Black community. And so I really hope that, you know, my book, along with, you know, a host of other books and other people who are helping to really cement anti-racism in the, the consciousness of American society, I really hope that uh, my book can be part of pushing that narrative in a bit of a microcosmic experience, one that in, you know, enmeshes the reader in this narrative of this family over the course of over 160 years. And so that's really the hope of this book and hopefully my, my impact that I can have on society. And of course, kids, kids just like me who grew up not knowing the great tragedies that occurred in their backyards. So can you tell me a little bit more about Kowtown? Who is he and what makes him such a pivotal character in your book? Sure. You know, uh, Ethan Allen Hitchcock was uh, a military leader in the mid-1800s. And he was visiting Oklahoma in the mid-1800s. And he encountered a very prosperous and important Creek chief named Yargi. And Yargi, uh, incidentally, had a young Black man who interpreted everything for him. And Ethan Allen Hitchcock called him his Negro Tom. And when you read what Ethan Allen Hitchcock wrote, this, you know, Ethan Allen Hitchcock, Hitchcock was, you know, part of kind of American aristocracy, if you will, right? Um, you didn't have to look too far into his ancestry or too many generations removed to hear people like Ethan Allen who were directly related to Ethan Allen Hitchcock. And when you see Negro Tom, he placed on him, Ethan Allen Hitchcock kind of placed on him all of these assumptions about what it meant to be black at that time. 
he wrote about how Kyle Tom, who at this point was a young man, you know, really wanted a gristmill for his family and his own land. He wrote about um, how Kyle Tom dutifully served and dutifully interpreted. But quite frankly, Kyle Tom, like many of the Black folks who were members of the Creek Nation at that time, um, really served as cultural brokers, right? Speaking both English and the indigenous languages, really helping to kind of intermix. Cal Tom, however, you know, would go on to, especially during the height of the Civil War and the fallout from the Battle of Honey Springs, which decimated a good portion of Creek land, um, would go on to serve as chief of this nation that people like Ethan Allen Hitchcock and others assumed that Cal Tom was just a slave in, right? Um, but Cal Tom was so much more than that. Um, he ended up becoming a chief. He ended up representing the Creek Nation along with another black man named Harry Island in front of uh, James Harlan, who at that time was the Secretary of the Interior and negotiated um, a peace treaty on behalf of the Creek Nation in 1866 that among many, many other things, also included emancipation opportunities for Blacks in particular, and not only emancipation, but guaranteed citizenship in the Creek Nation. And we think back, right, just to kind of think about who and how significant that act of liberation was for Black folks, and not just the Creek Nation, but also the Cherokee Nation, the Seminole Nation. When you look back at Blacks who were promised through Sherman's whole 40 acres and a mule concept that Andrew Johnson, after Lincoln died, kind of really remanded and, and stifled. You look at the prosperity of Black folks in some of these Indian nations, such as the Cherokee Nation, and the level of success was so much more outbounded, right, in these Native American nations. So Cal Tom really served as this fixture. Um, he's this focal point of this narrative that really helps us do a few things. It helps us, A, unearth hopefully a new way of thinking about Black folks at that time. B, he helps us really to start to tell the story of what his family then achieved, right? Um, whether it was his grandson-in-law, like Jake Simmons, becoming profiled in the Southern Workman as one of the most successful cattle ranchers uh, in the history of Oklahoma at that time, to you know, Jake Simmons' son, Jake Jr., who would become this veritable oil tycoon or even now, generations later, where his four-time great-grandson, Demario Solomon Simmons, is fighting to reclaim the citizenship that Cal Tom fought for and claimed and helped to uh, cement in law through that treaty in 1866, even today. So Cal Tom really allows us to understand and reconstitute why it is that identity should be informed by so much more than the very rigid and overly simplistic, albeit basic, confines that white supremacy oftentimes forces upon us. Mm. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned in your application is that you're really looking at what was once a very radical nation, right? And that it experimented with modern forms of citizenship that didn't depend on race. And so I'm curious about that history and how it, how you might answer some of those questions about what made it change so quickly. Sure. So the Creek Nation, like the Cherokee Nation, like the Seminole Nation, like the Choctaw, Chickasaw Nation, these were confederations of smaller tribes and people groups. And so there were processes and ways in which people became citizens. And that had been the case for hundreds and hundreds of years 
um, in terms of written history, that people weren't relegated by race or um, if one person had been a slave in the past, um, but had become a member of the Creek Nation, unlike in you know, the neighboring United States, especially in the South at that time, that slavery was not hereditary, it didn't travel with you, right? You were a Creek, plain and simple. And that didn't absolve you of anything else, right? It didn't absolve you of being a Black person or what have you. You were still able to be fully Black and fully Creek, a concept that uh, even when I first encountered it, felt puzzling, but in fact was the case. But in about nine, in the late 1800s, and kind of rounding out in the very early, uh, very early in the first decade of the 1900s, it's a guy named Henry Dawes and Senator Curtis and another guy named Tams Bixby, um, who sat on something called the Dawes Commission that sought to, uh, among other things, minimize significantly the stake that these five nations had on what was then purely Indian territory. And when that happened, um, they had to decide who was going to get what, right? Who was going to get the minimized land? Who was going to be the recipient of what was formerly communally held land? Who was going to get it? And as such, they had to quote unquote kind of verify the Indianness, if you will, of other people. And they did so by very arcane white supremacist racist perspectives, right? They, they kind of walked around and would ask people to validate their ties to the Creek Nation or their ties to the Cherokee Nation, sometimes eyeballing people and looking at them, getting a sense of uh, the shade and the depth of the hue of their skin and making an assessment as to whether or not that person was truly Native American, whether or not their blackness invalidated their opportunity to be what was called on the full blood rolls. If they had blackness in them, oftentimes they were placed on something called the Freedmen Rolls, right? And so as such, for the kind of first time, even though there were informal ways in which black folks were sometimes separated, um, black folks who were members of the Creek Nation were separated from others in the Creek Nation, this was a very final way of doing so and land was allocated accordingly. That for a very long time, for about 73 years, did not matter. But in about 1979, Claude Cox, who was then chief of the Creek Nation in partnership with others, and again, a confluence of events preceded this, uh, changed the citizenship regulations such that the only people who would be considered Creek or who would be able to identify and claim their citizenship as Creek were those who are not on the Freedmen Rolls, those who are not on any other rolls, but those who are on the full blood rolls. And what that then did is it disenfranchised a significant amount of Black folks. Now, the question is, why, why is that? Now, you know, in part of my investigation, I found the minutes from a tribal council meeting where Chief Cox waxes eloquent about his fears of the growth of Negroes, if he, as he put it, in the Creek Nation, right? Um, that there needed to be some level of purity, essentially that his fear that they would be, be get to the point where they would almost take over parts of the nation. Um, so what, what that is actually representative of is this notion, as Daniel Littlefield put it, that the Creek Nation, like many other nations, had become, in the perspective, there was this fear, this lingering fear that the Creek Nation could potentially become too Black to be fully considered 
Native American, right? And that, again, goes back to our super rigid and non-complex ahistorical perspectives of identity. This was an independent nation. It was not about the color of your skin. It was about the citizenship, citizenship uh, decisions and uh, guidelines that they had for a very long time, dating back long before the Treaty of 1866. But as Daniel Littlefield put it, as I've put in one of the articles that I've done on this story, it was out-and-out racism that influenced people minimizing who got to be considered Creek and who got to not be considered Creek. So one, one of the objectives of your book, you said, is to link this history to present-day conversations around race, identity, and reparations as well. So can you help us help me think about how that history and, and what you're hoping readers will get out of it can help us think differently about these these issues today? Definitely. I think that it's really difficult in America now, and perhaps this is one of the best outcomes we could have hoped for, intermediary outcomes we could have asked for, um, but it's very hard to have a conversation these days about racial justice and equity without talking about reparations and restitution. And I think what this story does is that it situates two things. It situates what happened when Black folks got what they were owed, in part, if you will, or in whole. And then B, it helps us then situate how do we make whole those who were once whole. Um, So in the case of Cal Tom's descendants during the late 1800s and early 1900s, even the first half of the 20th century, they really benefited significantly by being members of the Creek Nation, right? They had land that was plenteous. They were able to engage in the, you know, engage in leveraging the means of capital to make and do for themselves. I mean, Jake Simmons, who's Cal Tom's grandson-in-law, who married uh, Cal Tom's granddaughter, Rose, would boast about how he had a massive house with 10, 10 rooms for his children, how he had many men and women working for him, how in that time he had um, over, he, in that year, in 1915, he had done deals that were in today's dollars roughly around $300,000. And when you compare that to the average net worth of folks, black folks living today, either in Oklahoma or in many parts around the country, $300,000 is a significant amount. So because of the Treaty of 1866, uh, black folks who were once slaves, black folks who had been adopted in were made fully Creek. And with that came guarantees for land ownership and opportunity. Now, fast forward to 1979, when DeMario's family and Cal Cal Tom's descendants were uh, given the boot from the Creek Nation, and they lost something even more pivotal than any dollar amount can give you, which is their claim on citizenship, their claim on history, their claim as such on identity. And there are very clear um, opportunities to then examine in a micro sense what it might look like to make these folks whole, to repair the damages done, which is oftentimes really hard to do when we have a conversation about reparations, which is all too often kind of stuck in the abstract. This book forces us to have a concrete, non-abstract conversation 
about what it means to make people whole. This has been a very challenging year around the globe for so many of us and for reasons you just outlined, but also uh, with this being a pandemic. But what gives you hope right now or inspiration right now during this time? That's an incredibly difficult question because I think hope is hard to find. But I would say that what's, what's giving me hope in this moment is I feel like for the first time, and I don't know if this is temporary or if it is permanent, it feels like America um, is being forced to deal yet again with its terrible record, both past and present, on race and identity. And perhaps for the first time in a long time, I'm not saying America's ready to listen, but America has been forced into a position where it is listening. And I really believe that both those who are on the ground, who have become activated, those who are writing um, to try and make sense of all of this, trying to see if they can use the language of anti-racism to cut through a lot of the noise, it seems as if somehow it's not landing on as many deaf ears as it once did. And hopefully we can leverage this moment to help America and even more, kind of the world, never forget uh, that, that it might be worth attuning their ears to the difficulties with which we are presented uniquely in this country, which is that we have never valued people on the margins near as much as we valued straight, binary white men. And hopefully, in so doing, uh, we'll be able to drive not just conversation, but meaningful policy change in a direction that, again, focuses on how we can be made whole, period. Where do you hope to be your project a year from now? Done. Um, most importantly, no, I, I, I hope that I am at a place where not only my editor and I are plugging away, but that it is it is um, in the final phases of editing. But more than that, I really hope that, uh, which this book has been a personal journey for me in exploring my own identity and how it has become structured. And so I hope that not only from the professional external perspective of this book being completed and turned back into my editor, my editor being pleased and joyous celebration happens when we figure out exactly what the pub date time by time zone is figured out. But even more than that, that I will have an even more clear way of not only processing and expressing and articulating my own identity, but that I can help others. Like I, I've done so, so much that I can help others who might also want to have a more historically informed understanding of their very beautifully complex, sometimes messy histories that shape their identity. Well, we look forward to supporting you this year and thank you again for your time today, Caleb. Thank you for listening to this interview. If you enjoy this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2021.